Obviously, the women are screened into this program. It's part of the OPD, the Offending Personality Disorder Pathway. Um, and for me, there are issues around that screening process in terms of ethnicity. I'm doing a little bit of work around that with a few um, colleagues from UCLan and, and around the country, just looking at why black people aren't screened into this um, program when actually black people are traumatized through racism, they're traumatized through all sorts of things in life and are overrepresented in the, in, in the mental health service and prison. So why aren't they also being screened into these programs? It's, it's worrying. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Uh, today we're talking with Rachel Rose Burrell. Rachel Rose, you're currently the therapy manager and clinical lead for what must be one of the most important projects in the English prison system. And this is the Women's Therapeutic Community at HMP SEND. And we will come on to that uh, later on. But before we do so, could you tell us about yourself and how you came to be a psychotherapist? Uh, yes. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I, w I was uh, born and raised in Wiltshire in a, in a small town near Bath. Um, my parents uh, um, emigrated from Jamaica in the 60s. And, uh, and from the age of three, um, told my parents I wanted to be a nurse. And so that was my um, course of action and my focus um, from that very young age. Um, I think for my fourth Christmas, um, for, for my Christmas present when I was four, um, I got the full kind of nurse outfit with, uh, along with stethoscope and, and bag and cape. So, you know, I was already um, feeling very very much a qualified nurse <laughs> from that age so that was kind of my um, direction of travel and then um, I eventually did qualify as a as a nurse but uh, as I was nursing one day there was a patient who was very very anxious um, the day before her um, her operation she was um, and I promised her I would come back and just sort of have a word with her and be supportive and um, encouraging and we were so busy that I didn't have time to do that and um, I left work feeling really bad and thinking oh my gosh what I really want to do is spend more time talking to people um, and supporting them when they do feel anxious and distressed. I had taken psychology as A level and was really interested in the field of psychology and the mind anyway um, but felt that was the turning point. So then I started my training whilst I was nursing and then eventually transitioned over to being a, a therapist. Thank you. So from what you're saying, obviously your family were very supportive and helpful to you in this. Was there anything else about your family background that took you in that direction, do you think? Well, my I came from a Christian home. My father was a, a pastor for a while. Um, both my parents had prominent positions um, within the church. And 
one of their positions, actually, they were both on the, on the choir. And uh, so there was a lot of singing at home and a lot of music. And um, my family really are a singing family. And um, particularly the, the different stages, we all sang together, but particularly my sisters and we wrote songs with a small church choir and won competitions and would go out and sing and still still do today, actually. Uh, but so, so we grew up in a Christian home and the church was actually central to our lives. Um, and so it was the kind of place uh, for belonging and friendship and family and fun. I, I'm going to put in there, uh, sometimes a little bit boring, was, you know, I prefer to be out with friends sometimes, but, you know, um, it, it was sort of central to our existence. There was, as I said, a lot of singing and the, the church that we were part of was, was called Bethel Apostolic. And so they had at least 40 churches around the country. So, and they would have lots of sort of regional events. So we were known, um, as the Bristol district. So, you know, we had friends from Wales and Bristol and Reading, and then there were lots of national events. And as a result, we just developed hundreds and hundreds of friendships and traveled around the country to these different locations. Yeah, all based around church, but also based around, I suppose, uh, uh, in, a, in a sense, the therapeutic, but it was a faith faith community. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, a lot of it was around having, you know, there was always hope and there was always um, some sort of meaning that was applied to life because life was hard. It was hard being black in this country. It was hard um, just getting ahead. Um, and yeah, finding who you were. And so church sort of provided that space where you can just be and that you were around people who understood and were kind of very similar to yourself, similar backgrounds. Um, yeah, so yeah, church played a huge part in my life, but also it created this whole new world of, you know, friendships and, and you know, extended family almost. It does sound very social, very sociable uh, as, as, as well. So you mentioned that you're a woman of colour. Did you find that that uh, had any effect on the trainings that you went on to take? I, I think being a, a black woman um, didn't necessarily impact the choice of, of course that I undertook. I was very clear about what I wanted to do. I was very focused and determined. I think being a black woman affected how I was treated on these courses and um, and generally speaking the, the training courses were, were not I didn't have a good experience it was very hard very painful at times very very difficult the racism was overt and um, and yes also anti anti sort of religion, anti-faith was very overt um, and yeah I spent a lot of time trying to protect myself and actually the the courses that I wanted to do the knowledge was great but yeah that didn't always meet my learning style often I was the only black person on the courses um, and and yeah and, and sometimes just the presentation of issues around race and diversity, I mean, it was minuscule anyway, but what was presented 
some of it wasn't too bad, but it, you know, two hours on a, uh, you know, on a master's course, uh, talking about race and culture and diversity, I, I was just shocked at that. I just couldn't believe that that, that was it. Um, and then people were sent out to work with people from all sorts of backgrounds. I just didn't think that was enough, um, but didn't really have the confidence and the voice to say that at the time. But yeah, so the training for me, the whole nursing right through to the therapy, there was always some racial dimension and some, some form of attack um, that I, and, and some sort of, even from tutors, um, things that I had to overcome and yeah, it was a, it's been a hard, long road, but, but worthwhile, of course. It was quite sad to, to hear that, Rachel Rose, because I think, you know, when we think about therapy, we think about that enabling people to belong and, and be, feel included. So the fact that that wasn't your experience during training, I'm sure yeah. that's not unique to you either. I'm sure, you know, I know it's been an issue within the, um, training courses yeah. for clinical psychology, for instance, where people of colour have felt um, that they haven't been included. Um, it seems we've taken a very long time to get round to thinking more about how people are included and feel valued yeah. within within yeah, training very, courses. Very, very true. Um, I know I'm, it's not an isolated case. I talk to many of my, um, particularly my black colleagues who have a very similar experience and um i share one experience with you i was doing something around group work i went to some training and um the facilitator i think she was trying to do i think she was trying to be helpful so there were there was myself and another i think two other black women present and she asked us to sit in the center of the circle with all the white um uh, members sitting around us and then she sort of threw out these questions around race and how would we deal with you know black people and of it was very very bizarre I was furious and the uh, one black woman left and never I never returned and then when there was a very there was an the third black woman was she just sat really quietly she didn't say very much and I I was as furious at her too <laughs> I said well why aren't you saying anything and she said look you've got to pick your battles this is this happens all the time and what's the point in getting angry about it uh, I'll just take the knowledge that I want and I'll, and I'll go but I I think that that was a turning point for me to sort of think about well what battles do I fight what what battles do I win do I just fight for the sake of fighting um, because that's what it feels like it feels like a fight um, to, to get yeah, it felt like a fight at the time to get through these training courses, but I needed that certificate. <laughs> so I put myself through a lot um, for the sake of, yeah, get getting those qualifications. And when we've spoken to other people of colour on this podcast, they've often mentioned that it's like having to do uh, an extra load of emotional work just keeping your guard up and dealing with all kinds of levels of uh, slight uh, mm. and attack does that resonate with you at it, all it, it does um also one has to prove you know i've had to be proving myself 
proving my worth, proving I'm just as good, proving... And, and sometimes you can't actually be your authentic self. You've got to be almost this walking, um, walking, walking academic, studious, articulate person who, um, who I think it's about being listened to, respected and being taken seriously. Um, and yeah, it, it, it does add a, an extra layer because sometimes uh, you find, well, I found I've had to work twice as hard, but it's not just me. I mean, this is common, commonly said amongst black people that you have to work twice as hard, um, twice as long. Um, you know, I, even in my nursing, um, I was on a degree course and it was very unusual It was to have a degree course in nursing at the time. And being the only black person was horrendous. People just felt <laughs> they were very clear. I just had no right to be on this course, you know. Um, and tutors, you know, you could see the different treatment. You know, I was treated differently. And that was, you know, right through my sort of training, um, psychotherapy included. So, yeah, I think, but this is no different to the journey of black people generally, isn't it? As if we talk about slavery, people had to overcome and endure and conquer and press through. And even um, whilst people were enslaved, they also were great entrepreneurs, when I say entrepreneurs, but they were great um, um, pioneers in sort of inventions because uh, they were doing such hard labor. They came up with all these um different ways of making the workload easier so lots of things uh, that we use now in gardening it, it, many many black people um, came up with those um, inventions that you know never got credit for even the watering can you know things like that so I think this is what happens even though uh, yes it's difficult but and painful but out of it you know some some good things can happen too Just make the question though, how well can we be serving the needs of clients that, that come from black and Asian backgrounds, doesn't it? If we can't even treat colleagues with the same value and respect, um, you know, how do we then manage it when there's a, a power dynamic created by us representing a, a Yeah, and I think them? this is a, a you, you know, um, part of the debate and discussion that's going on in sort of cross-cultural therapy and those who are interested in having these dis these discussions around culture and race in in, in therapy, um, because you know the world of therapy is about respect. It's about empathy. You know um, the BACP has these um, qualities that you know people have to adhere to. Um, that you know they're going to be integral and um, and. Uh, congruent and you, you know the client comes first I mean the framework is built around the client you know so when we are sitting with individuals who are coming from different backgrounds or just different ways of life I don't think it's acceptable for us not to one talk about them in a holistic way that includes faith that includes difference and that actually that it helps us to navigate through the life of the client, but also helps us to grow as, as per professionally and personally, I feel, if we allow ourselves to, to go there. But, you know, our training doesn't 
necessarily the training necessarily doesn't equip us to do that and, and lots of therapists are not willing to talk about those issues unless the client brings it up and so, so I, I think there are that there are wider issues about why do people become therapists because it, it power we, we, we can't deny the power dynamic in that what what is it we're trying to achieve and yeah if 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 people are having sort of attitudes sort of racist attitudes but, but you find that in everywhere so I think you know but particularly in caring professions I mean there is an expectation that people are a little just a little bit more understanding and wanting to embrace all but yeah I think in reality it's it's very different and it's just a work in progress isn't it I think we've just got to keep having the conversations and keep keep trying to, to embed these things in our practice. So you've hinted at this already I think but it sounds as if even your psychotherapy training was dogged by some of these issues is that is that the case? Yeah absolutely which was a shock to me, you know, um, I'm here, you know, I, I joined this course to understand people and um, to, to, yeah, and also to understand myself. And it, obviously people um, join these courses for, for different reasons. And, but I think even in these negative experiences, there's, there's learning, you know, um, and I've had to sort of build a resilience. I've had to think about the battles I fight or, or not fight. I've got to keep focused on my goal. Um, I, I've got, I've had to think about not allowing things to deter me or when I do fall, I get back up. I mean, I've been on a, you know, I, I, I did a doctorate, but that wasn't my first attempt at a doctorate. My first attempt, um, I wanted to do, um, a, a course. Or, or do some study and research around, you know, just black people in therapy and their experience of therapy. And um, I was told I couldn't do it, that I had to do some sort of comparative study um, and it had to include white people. And I said, well, I didn't really want to do that. And my supervisors um, vilified me, actually, attacked me, um, told me I wasn't good enough. And um, first of all, said they would progress me onto the next stage, and then they said they wouldn't. And then, you know, eventually I left the course, it, you know, just feeling absolutely dreadful and just thinking I was nothing and nobody and that I, could, I couldn't study and I wasn't, would, would never be good enough at this sort of level. And it took me a few years to sort of even get the confidence to do a short course. <laughs> Um, I was so damaged as a result, but actually what it did was help me to reset my focus and my faith helped me to do that, actually, that nobody has the right to tell me I can't. I, I can tell myself I can't, uh, you know, that's my limitation and that's my stuff, but no one else has the, the, the right to tell me I can't do what I want to do. And I sort of took that stance and yeah, the, the second attempt was, was absolutely brilliant and ended up in me winning an award for my, for my um, thesis. So, yeah, I, you know, the message is don't, don't give up. Just, just keep going and, and, and aim for your goals and your dreams. 
I'm really shocked to hear that that was your experience, actually. But there's, there's also this lovely sense of inspirational triumph um, at the end outcome. But, uh, you know, I'm appalled that that was your experience um, and that you've, you've had to fight so hard. I think it's common, you know. And, you know, I was helping my, my niece write her thesis and she was sort of looking at education, and it's it's just dire in the institutions, you know, the experience of black people. I, I, I'm only speaking about black because I know about black, some some black experiences. But yeah, I think the 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 whole the whole death of George Floyd and the sort of wave of Black Lives Matter during the pandemic. And the, the discourse and the, the narratives and the, the discussions that we were able to have quite openly and freely and the, the fact that, you know, nas- internationally people came together to say this isn't, this isn't okay. Um, I think was a turning point. The issue, I think, is how do we maintain that momentum? How do we continue to work together to not just talk about these issues, but to actively address them? And I think that that takes a collective. That's not just a, black people doing that that's white people that's that's joint and um from all areas um you know all the inst- the major institutions you know health education mental health faith that everybody needs to come together to ensure that you know we continue with this message that we have to improve things um for everybody but including black people who seem to have a a, a difficult time um Generally, generally speaking. Thank you. So you completed your psychotherapy training, came through it with your whole kind of, I imagine you must have been forged during that uh, experience. What, what did you do when you finished your training? Uh, my psychotherapy yes. training. Um, so I started working in community organisations um some exciting work actually i um i got a job to develop a service um in in southwark um and it was a it was working with the largest estate in europe where they spoke 40 odd languages and we were there to build a therapeutic service for this community and my goodness, we pulled out all the stops. I mean, we had interpreting services. We had you know, um, swimming classes for Muslim women. We had massage classes for babies. I mean, it was incredible. And we, we won an award for it. Um, um, and soon after winning that award, they shut the service down. I mean, this is... I, that blew my mind, actually. If something is going so well, why would you stop it? Um, so yeah, I think, and, and that still happens today. I, I, I learned that you know funding is, is withdrawn from things that are successful. Um, so, so I think that that was a sort of starting point for me, and I sort of built from there. And I found myself in various jobs in, in terms of working in schools and other services where I went in to develop and build services. Um, and then I, I went into education and and, um, and and became the head of um, a therapy service within a university setting and did that um, for, for several years. 
um, and eventually ended up in, in the NHS again, working as a psychotherapist um, to support staff. Um, and that was my job before I, I ended up in here, now um, here at HMP Send. So, yeah, it's been a very... I've loved the jobs that I've, I've done and sort of put my heart and soul into it. And, um, yeah, just met some amazing people along the way as well. And the work has been really, really rewarding. Thank you, Rachel. Rachel Rose. In your doctoral thesis, you refer to racism um, quite a few times in terms of the therape- thinking about therapeutic work. Can you say something about how racism's cropped up in terms of the therapy that you've delivered? Yeah. So the I, I mean, I just I was quite newly qualified and. Um, was working with young people and then got a second job, moving, moved on to something else. Um, and I was working in a residential unit um, for young people and, um, and, and it also served the community. And a young woman was referred to me and um, she must have had a conversation with, with the, the, uh, with the um, managers, I, I believe. And, she was. She asked, you know, is is this therapist white or black? And they said, you know, the therapist is black. And so she said, well, I don't want to see her. And this is a black woman. And um, they told me. So I was there, ready, waiting for this client, and I was told that she's she's not she's not coming. And I later found out it was because I was black, and I was absolutely blown away by that. Um, in my thinking, um, you know. Um, it was great to see black people aspiring. There wasn't that many of us at the time in these positions. Um, and so I, I, I celebrated it. So I couldn't quite understand why somebody wouldn't want to see me who'd never met me, not sat with me, and, and, and because I was black. And then, then um, one of the um, uh, managers or one of the, my colleagues uh, wrote for a... Um, an, was writing articles at the time and said, no, have you heard of um, internalized oppression? And so we, we got talking about this. And essentially what that means is it, it, this is um, a black person accepting and, or, and absorbing the same sort of negative attitudes and behaviors as, um, as, as those, uh, as the oppressors, if you like. So, you know, as, so those people who are um, racist, we absorb that way of thinking and we attack ourselves and we attack our, our racial group and we are, we are suspicious of our group. We, um, um, have negative feelings towards our racial group. And my goodness, I saw that I can see that being played out, um, particularly when I was growing up between the Caribbean and the African countries. Um, and, um, also, within Caribbean countries or between the Caribbean countries um, where there was suspicion and dislike and um, derogatory thinking. Uh, and, and that all came from media and the way our history had been told and the, the inaccurate and false stories that were told about our nation to us that we believed and accepted. 
And so what that led me to do was I, I went off and did a diploma in African and Caribbean studies. I thought, I've got to know my history. What I was taught in school was just about slavery and, you know, um, that we're disempowered and, you know, we originate from apes and, um, you know, we don't really have much to give to society. But that course I did blew my mind. We were pioneers and originators of so much that no one ever talked about. And, you know, that sort of um, helped me to have a pride in myself, my heritage, but also helped me then to teach other people, white and black, about the, the true history of black people in this world and our contribution to nations. Um, so, but in terms of racism, I think that just permeates through everything doesn't it? it it's it's that fear of the other and when we fear the other we attack the other um and so you know that's what that that's about we have to try and understand that that's pathological if you don't know somebody you don't understand somebody so you attack that 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 needs some unpacking and some work and i think if we come from it from that angle you know i think so we can have some really helpful and enriching conversations and I do think with training and understanding you know you, you can build that allyship can't you um, and I think throughout the pandemic and sort of moving forward that that we saw a lot of that that people aligned themselves together from all different backgrounds and races and cultures to say actually treating people equally and with respect is the way the way forward. So you were talking there Rachel Rose it does make me think about the power of the educational system to change things and I was listening to a podcast with Anthony Horowitz who was talking who's who's quite a bit older than I am and he was talking about having enjoyed reading Lord of the Flies and the go-between at school well that they were the texts I also studied at least a decade later and uh, you know how much of our curriculum and our style reflects very old ways of thinking about things and how much different would the curriculum be if it did include a more diverse um, range of contributors when we were thinking about achievements rather than just white people, predominantly white white men. Yes, in, in, indeed. I, I think... I mean, the, the purpose of institutions is to maintain the status quo, and that is for a reason, isn't it? And, you know, British culture is very much male, white, white male dominated, isn't it? It permeates through, through everything. But, but if we were to be more open to the fact that actually women have played a huge role in the development of this country, black people have played a a massive role in the development of this country. I mean, you know, there were black people in this country in Rome, you know, came, you know, in Roman times, you know, there were tens of thousands of people here um, uh, in Victorian times, you know, doing well um, and before slavery. And so, you know, if we gave a more accurate picture of history, I think it would enrich our culture and maybe I don't I don't really like this word I don't really like the word tolerance, but I do like the word acceptance. Maybe it would help people to be more accepting that actually 
you know, all these different, uh, this web, this not this web, but this interwoven kind of cultural mesh of the British culture is actually quite interesting and fantastic. Um, and yeah, it would be wonderful to add that to the educational curriculum, but I understand there are lots of debates and resistance to that. And we have to ask why, you know, um, we, we celebrate Black History Month every year now, and we see the amazing contribution black people have made to the development of this country, to science, to innovation, um, technology, uh, and we only want to do that once a month. But that that's something that is actually um, really significant to the um, development of this country. So yeah, I'm I'm very much for that. And, you know, I, I hope eventually that will become the case that there is a more accurate picture of um, black history that permeates throughout the curriculum that, that, that people learn about. And, yeah, um, I think it would be fantastic. Thank you. David, do you want to ask the questions, questions seven and eight? Because they probably have more. Yes, OK. Um... I read, I did read through your dissertation, which I thought was great, and it certainly took me to places that I was very uh, unfamiliar with, and I learned a lot here from it. Um, and some of it was here quite uh, shocking, uh, I think. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned, which was new to me actually, I was very interested to see this, was a quotation from uh, uh, Neelam Zahid. Um, and uh, she'd written that uh, uh, the experience of Jewish psychoanalysts having to move from uh, Germany and Austria to the to the West, so to England and America primarily, um, became a kind of ethnic cleansing, where they um, inversely repeated their past experiences. Um, so, so what she was suggesting was they created this racially blind therapy. Can you can you tell us a bit about your understanding of that? Yeah, when I read that statement, I was quite taken aback as well. But it, but it's something that I'd heard about through my 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 sort of discussions with fellow black um, professionals, and. And, and you know the, just the journey of 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 or the the development of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, which when I started training was very was considered racist and uh, yeah sexist, and so so when I read this statement, it, it sort of resonated and made made sense to me in that we we have what what is called the father of of you know psychoanalysis um and you know who this group became an oppressed group when they were fleeing um nazi you know power and oppression they were the oppressed but 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 you know as as so often is the case in some senses became the oppressor because we were told uh, when I was studying psychoanalysis, it, it, you know, black people can't handle psychoanalysis because they're not insightful enough. And Freud has made it clear that this is really not 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 for your kind. And um, 
So, so and, and then, and this whole language around psychoanalysis as well, that was very separatist and very superior and only certain people could get it. And then there was the infighting with psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and, you know, and, and we had even the governing bodies, the UKCP and the BACP at one stage were at, were at odds with each other. So this is something I think that sort of permeates right through, um, the history of psychoanalysis that, yeah, I think sometimes uh, the way I look at it when I look at the statement is I, I have to think about the sort of um, drama triangle that the victim can become the perpetrator and then becomes the rescuer. And, you know, you know, therapy is there to help and support. But if it's only for certain a certain number of people or certain kinds of people, then actually it, it, it then becomes aggressive. It becomes um, um something that's separating people and how, how can that be healthy and helpful? So that's my kind of the, the way I sort of unpack that statement, which is, you know, some something that could potentially have been good, you know, became something that, that became harmful at the same time because people had these very, very difficult um, experiences. And when I think about it, you know, the the, the history of, of, of Jews and Africans goes back to biblical times when, you know, it was actually the Africans that enslaved the Jews. And I think, I think we can't underestimate that, that, um, that history also. I think that's tied up in there, there somewhere. And, you know, I, I can't unpack it all. Um, but, you know, our, our lives, all our lives are intertwined the further we go back. And it's all complex. Um, and all and has a bearing on how we develop these theories today. Um, yeah, I think that, that puts it very clearly. And what that passage, I think, was saying to me um, is that we are all and always constrained by prejudice and we mostly can't see it until some later yeah. stage. So, for example, what it reminded me of was when I was uh, beginning my training, I knew of friends who couldn't become, couldn't get on training to be a psychotherapist because they were gay. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, and I yeah. think that has gradually changed over the years. But that was the prevailing, or one yeah. prevailing layer of prejudice that existed at, at that particular time. And it's always a, yeah. a struggle, it seems to me, to uh, develop our capacity to see what's there and what's blindingly obvious to many people, even though the rest of us can't see it. Anyway, you went on to, to, to mention a quotation from uh, Darwin, which was also shocking to me because I haven't read all of Darwin so I was shocked when I saw this particular passage which of course was a horrifying one about yeah, the place of uh, you know, black people in, in relation to the evolutionary cycle which we know to be nonsense uh, now um, but that, that also reminded me of when I was doing my thesis years ago on, on uh, uh, the place of uh, homosexuality in, in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, um, because Goebbels, the Nazi propagandist, had written in very similar terms 
to Darwin about gay people as, as Darwin did about you know, black people. So that was all pretty shocking. You must have found it shocking too. Well, no. It, it's something that I'd heard about and and it was sort of um, uh, projected onto me from a very early age, actually, um, that, that we were akin. It's, it's strange, isn't it? We're all... We're all human, but, you know, somehow black people come from apes and I don't know where white people are supposed to have come from. And I mean, it's a very strange sort of um, theory to me. But yes, I mean, um, derogatory comments about being an ape, looking like an ape, black people are apes, you know, it's um, and therefore not human, subhuman, um, not to be treated like humans, less than, all of that, that that was just sort of permeated through um through life um what was interesting to me was how freud really embraced um some of darwin's thinking and so that was the thing that made me um uncom even more uncomfortable about you know this the our theories <laughs> and what and what influences and um yeah what, what what is incorporated in the development of these these therapies and, and theories and um it's it's worrying isn't it and um and, and understandable why black people would reject the therapies and not want to engage with what what is called talking therapies and helping therapies because often there is a fear that their race and uh, culture and religion um, are going to be um, dismissed, overlooked. Um, somehow they're going to be pathologized. I mean, you know, Freud talk, spoke about religion as, as some sort of um, collective um, anxiety and, 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 you know, other derogatory, derogatory comments around religion. So, so uh, along with other, um, you know, therapists of the time. So we have to, I, I guess... Those of us in the field have to understand that the history of these the therapies and theories have have spoken negatively about certain um, groups of our population and therefore makes it hard for them to engage. And some often they are the ones who really need the support. And therefore we have to be really mindful and competent and equipped to manage these dynamics in the therapeutic and well, mental health consulting spaces. We we need to be skillful in how we engage people so that we are not reenacting those power imbalances and, and we're not reenacting, um, you know, the, the prejudices and the stigmas. And yeah, and, and if we are really serious about our craft and our profession, then I think this is a must that we have to be constantly training and reading and working to be better at what we do. And listening to your experiences of psychotherapy training, it sounds like most therapists would benefit from doing the course that you chose to do afterwards um, in terms of benefit, wow. you know, increasing their understanding of, of a wider cross-section of society. Yeah, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? My gosh. Wouldn't it? But, but, I, but, but to be fair, I do believe that, you know, there are 
white colleagues who have done that. They have said, look, I need to educate myself. I want to be equipped. I want to be inclusive. I want to learn and understand. I want to be more effective. And they have done. And and um, some of my black um, friends have said, actually, the person who taught me the most about my heritage and my culture was a white person. You know, I did on on that particular course, the most outspoken person and the most knowledgeable person, actually, um, among the students was a white woman who who knew lots and lots. I don't even know why she was there, because, I mean, it sounds like she, she knew everything already. It slightly irritated me that a white woman had come to hijack a black course. But 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 but, you know, I had a word with the tutor and he said, no, Rachel Rose, this course is for everybody and it is good. It's good that we're all coming together. And so, you know, it, it's also good that I challenge my feelings and my thoughts about, you know, who does knowledge belong to? You know, it's not black knowledge. It's everybody's knowledge. And that actually, um, if we hold it together and we are sharing it together, that's the best way, actually. Thank you. And your thesis focuses on black Christian churches in relation to mental health. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Yeah, I mean, I loved doing my project. And that course, actually, in terms of psychotherapy, was one of the best courses I've, I've ever done. It was just a wonderful experience. Um, the, the, the study involved um, focus groups and interviews with um, people who identified as black Christians um, and, and they were coming from a, a whole range of denominations including Catholic and um, New Testament and um, Methodist and Anglican so a whole you know traditional black Pentecostal as well as you know the, the sort of modern day sort of Christian churches and really fascinating what they had to say they had a lot to say um, and those who were interviewed were people who had had mental illness, those who were currently um, recovering from mental illness, and some who had not experienced mental illness but had family members. So it was a real sort of, and, and some were therapists as well. So it was a re really lovely combination of individuals. And what what came out of that, the learning from that, was that within the churches, historically churches have tried to support individuals. That, that, that that's that's you know compassion and you know food shelter all of all of that but when it comes to mental health particularly within the black churches there is um, um, a lot of misunderstanding and I'm going to say ignorance around what what mental illness is and for some people it's something that is spiritualized it has a sort of um, a uh, sort of de some people view it as a demonic possession that you, that that's what brings on mental illness some people just don't know what it is and are doing their best to try and understand but they they're not equipped they're not trained and so uh, some people um, reported that actually going to the leader made it worse and some people said they were just treated appallingly they were vilified and um, pathologized and um, ostracized um, and, and, and then there were pockets of churches that actually had developed therapeutic interventions. They had qualified people coming in or part of their churches to support individuals. And what they said about external services were that, you know, the practitioners were arrogant. Often when they went for help, they were pathologized. They were just given medication, especially if they mentioned that they were Christian. 
because many of our therapeutic colleagues or, or people in the therapy world are not religious, gen generally speaking, and see religion as something that's oppressive, outdated, controlling, and really not scientific. So um, it has no, no place in, in, in the therapeutic space. So, so people were afraid to bring it up in the therapeutic spaces, uncomfortable about talking about faith. Some of them didn't talk about their faith at all or their culture. There was fear of racism. And um, also within mental health generally, there was a, there was a fear of being, um, yeah, um, labeled and diagnosed with more severe mental illness diagnoses such as schizophrenia which we know happens and and then just being offered medication what people were saying was we was one wanted to be treated with respect in the church and out outside the church we want to be listened to we want to we want um help and support we want information we want networks um we want a package of care um and so it was really helpful um, to hear all of that. And, and, and there are pockets around where that is happening, but it's not joined up. And um, yeah, and, and sometimes it wasn't happening at all. So really, really great um, piece of work I felt. And yeah, just sort of inspired me to take it one step further. And so after that, I developed a well-being service within my own church, which served the community as well as the congregation, where we pulled all our professionals um, within the church and, and made links outside the church to, to help people with their mental health and well-being, as well as doing lots and lots of training as well. That sounds like a fantastic initiative. I was, I was really struck as you were talking by, you know, I can um, recognise what you're saying about... Uh, mental health professionals often not valuing people's religious or spiritual uh, beliefs and what that might contribute. And if, indeed, one of our previous guests, Nicola, uh, Nicoletta Porjanu, spoke about psychotherapy actually meaning healing of the soul, which ought to yes. speak directly to uh, faith and spirituality. And yet, I think the you know there's a tendency for psychotherapists, psychologists not to value that at all, not barely to even ask about that, or if it does crop up, often evoking prejudice um, of its own sort from the from the practitioner. I think. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people say to me they've gone to therapy and they've been talking about their faith and religion, and the person, the therapist, has said. You don't, you don't believe in that nonsense, do you? <laughs> you know, um, and I—you're absolutely right that you know what what I found in my um, thesis was that faith is good for your health. Actually, if if it's if you engage with it in the in the right way, it 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 increases. You, you know, it lowers the blood pressure. It increases the the sort of relaxation response because all the things that are around faith and church you know we we, we sort of we encourage and we certainly encouraged it um, throughout the pandemic so things like connection and a sense of belonging and singing and dancing and volunteering I mean the the, the church community promotes all of these things um, praying um, is also is, is another form of meditation you know mindfulness is the kind of buzzword but meditation the church has been doing that for for years and compassion focused therapy the 
that's central to sort of Christian thinking and Christian a Christian lifestyle. But now we've got cash, compassion focused therapy. I mean, you know, the, the, these are all sorts of biblical faith based principles, and so absolutely, um, faith has its place. It helps people to have a purpose and meaning in life, and we know also that is important for 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 human beings generally. So. Yes, I'm. I'm very much, um, you know, a believer that faith has its place, and that if we can get get training developers and supervisors to build their confidence in talking about these areas, I think, you know, as I said at the beginning, I think it will enrich the um, encounter that you have with your client, but also help us to grow as a profession and on a personal level as well. So, Rachel Rose, I've got uh, half an eye on the clock um, and yes. uh, thinking what's the most important things we can talk about in the final min minutes of this conversation. Um, you can choose, um, but I will suggest for a beginning that uh, your work at uh, SEND the women's TC in prisons is something that's pretty important to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. When I first um, sort of read about this, this, the role, I was looking for a new job and I read about this role and I thought this is really exciting and really interesting. Um, and I, I was fortunate to get the role as head of psychotherapy in the, the therapeutic uh, community manager at HMP Sand. It's the only one of its kind in your in 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 Europe. But we we've been doing research and we can't find another like it. So we believe it's the only one of its kind in the world at the moment. And and the focus is to reduce reoffending, obviously, um, but to work with the women to bring about meaningful change to their well-being and um, their mental health and. And, and how it does that is the community becomes a mirror. Uh, it helps the woman to kind of take a look at herself, what she's doing, her decision-making, why she does what she does. And everything has a sort of therapeutic element. Everything um, is discussed in these smaller and larger therapeutic spaces. Um, Obviously, the women are screened into this program. It's part of the OPD, the Offending Personality Disorder Pathway. Um, and for me, there are issues around that screening process in terms of ethnicity. I'm doing a little bit of work around that with a few um, colleagues from UCLan and, and around the country, just looking at why black people aren't screened into this um, program when actually... Black people are traumatized through racism. They're traumatized through all sorts of things in life and are overrepresented in the, in, in the mental health service and prison. So why aren't they also being screened into these programs? It's, it's worrying. And so we're looking into that and hopefully um, we'll have some, some answers around that process. Um, so yes, it's, a, it's, it's really hard work. Working within a prison adds an, an absolute different dimension because it's a it's not really conducive for healing and calmness um and 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 trying to create that environment for growth and change uh because sometimes it's so chaotic and always changing and yeah there's always something going on um 
but you know great team at hnp send so it's a multidisciplinary team of psychologists psychotherapists art psychotherapists officers we're working together we're working in collaboration with other um, groups within the or services within the um, prison omu um, chaplaincy etc and yes i think it is a, a really fascinating and amazing um, service to work for and, and the women when they change and, and when they're changing and when they're really embracing the work and yeah absolutely phenomenal what what you know what what can happen um can really change lives and so we're yeah we're great believers in what we're trying to achieve even though it's in within difficult circumstances and difficult environments whenever i visited i've always been very impressed by the uh, spirit and the culture of the uh, place but i have been struck by the lack of diversity as you've just uh, mentioned so that's something you clearly want to raise your profile about and it's always felt a bit as if it were um, an important part of the prison activity um, but perhaps could be given an even more higher profile what do you think about that i i I'm absolutely 100%. I, I think um, the, when we're in a prison setting, it is very easy to become inward looking and to protect your service, actually, um, from everything else that's going on in the wider prison. And it, it, it takes a lot of hard work. And so, you know, you have to kind of really think about what you invest in. But I personally don't feel we can have such a service without... Um, building those bridges with everyone else in the prison. I think it's important for the whole prison to embrace the therapeutic community, not just the staff who work in the service, and to see it as something good and helpful. And so one of our approaches now at SEND as we're coming out of the pandemic is to really engage with the wider prison, with officers, with uh, yeah, certainly our governor is very much on board and deputy governor with what we're doing and to get voices to sort of champion what we're doing um, and, and we're doing that through open mornings and inductions with new staff and inviting you know we recently we had a, a national event where senior probation officers from around the country came to to, to visit um, to visit us so it's about outward looking and keeping abreast with the changes and the developments within the field and how we can add our voice to that but also you know you know really raising our profile within the prison and obviously I think research is also important so um, the, the staff at SEND um, uh, within the community are about to embark on a piece of research and also we're, we're starting to think about writing articles as well and hopes to get something out by the end of the year. Great. Naomi? Thank you, Rachel Rose. I'm just conscious of the time, and uh, we always like to finish by asking people about how they protected their own well being when facing um, hardship. Clearly, faith's important to you, but I, I wonder if there's anything else you would add in terms of um, how you've managed to stay strong, even though it sounds like you've had some pretty aversive experiences on the way. 
Yeah, so my church community, friends, uh, family that love me, that are good for me, keep me grounded and focused and cheerleaders. But singing is a really integral part of my life. So uh, I was singing with um, a well-known, the well-known um, London Community Gospel Choir for several years and then uh, did backing vocals for, for various artists and um, sing with a, a powerhouse gospel choir now and various different singing projects so that that and, and the gym obviously to keeping myself physically fit um, during the pandemic I became unwell and um, to strengthen my lung capacity I took up jogging for the first time and so yeah just just I'm really about just trying to learn so I try new things so at the weekend I did a bit of crazy golf so did that for the first time so just really want to embrace life really and to live a life um um, that's grateful um, from that position and to really be looking for new um, ventures and new dreams to attain to and new goals so always striving forward and always moving forward that's kind of my life you know, that, that love of life and also I think a determination um, not to get knocked down has really come across from your interview just thinking about the singing not only is that something that people can find quite positive we know now that it that also helps the vagus nerve doesn't it in terms of yes. protecting our well-being so sounds like a great choice absolutely i think i think that one final thing to say is i do find myself you know as well as look, looking after myself i do think it's important to give back so i do lots of training and training I suppose around mental health and helping others to look after their health mental health particularly within the church and just helping people to understand what that means if we're going to be holistic it's not just about being spiritual it's about thinking about your the whole of you your whole well-being which is your physical social spiritual and mental and psychological health it's been a really interesting conversation thank you Rachel Rose Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Naomi. And thank That's you, brilliant. Really good to see you again, Rachel Rose. Thank you. Thank you.